Hi, hello and welcome. This is the Zonecast where we interview emerging Canadian professionals, entrepreneurs and academics. And today we have with us on the show uh, Aaron Viras. He is the founder and CEO of uh, Strategy Box. Uh, hi, Aaron. How are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, yeah, I'm doing great today. Looking forward to having a converse, great conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited for this uh, particular episode and I have a feeling it's going to be insightful. Um, I want to start by talking about your background. So can you tell us about your professional and personal background? Sure. So uh, I'm, I'm, you know, in my mid thirties, I enjoy long walks, uh, long walks on the beach and, uh, you know, dogs. Those are a favorite of mine. Um, no, I uh, started out life in uh, I started out life in Vancouver. I was born and bred here. I went to school actually in Toronto at York University for, uh, um, and I studied the history of business and sociology, uh, which actually I use a fair amount in my day to day. But we'll get to that later. Uh, and uh, yeah, all throughout my life, I've kind of pursued a I'll call it a path less traveled. I've I've lived in China and um, I ran for many years a uh, marketing marketing. Uh, consultancy. Uh, so we helped companies find their most profitable customers. And I did that for companies in Asia that wanted to come to North America primarily. Uh, so while I was doing that, I developed a framework and some intellectual property that I then realized could be turned into software. And a lot of people kind of want to know, well, hey, how do you turn, how does a customer become a customer? What does that person look like? What's the journey that they take uh, from, you know, just hearing about your company to actually buying from you and, you know, what, what advertising or marketing activities actually work. And so I took that, some of those processes and some of those insights and I'm not a, I don't know how to code. Uh, I know how to design a little bit and I know my way around, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of a website, you know, how to build a website, but, um, I took all of that information and I hired a great team around me and, We've built a software platform uh, that allows companies to do exactly that. It allows them to take all their marketing data, put it in one spot, and then tell what marketing activities are driving sales and which aren't. And then it recommends what to do next in order to drive uh, in order to drive their results up. And I came to that in a very circuitous route, and I'm happy to talk more about it. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I had that you know, had that consulting company. Uh, I when I got out of university, I worked for the Olympics in 2010 that were in Vancouver in 2010. Um, and I've kind of uh, what I found very interesting is what I'm doing today. I had a lot of disparate experiences that all led up to this moment. And when I weave those all those experiences together, it's what allows me to do what I'm doing today. So I'm really thankful for kind of the the, the weird journey that I've taken. And I'm, I'm happy to talk a little bit more about kind of some of those learning experiences, because I think a lot of people, especially when they're starting out in entrepreneurship, they think this is kind of a one one shot deal or, or you have this epiphany and then suddenly you've got this super successful business. And I'm the first person to throw my hand up and say that's not the case. Uh, and it's OK that it's not the case. Mm-hmm. So um, y- um, you mentioned earlier that at York University you were studying history of business. So that's mm-hmm. an interesting specific subject. 
people do study business, but the history of business is uh, a bit uh, unique. So can you tell us more about that program and what was it like? Sure. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't know if you know this, Solomon, but I'm a huge nerd. Um, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not gonna let, I'm not gonna lie. The history of business is potentially one of the drier subjects in the world, but it's fascinating to me. Uh, so I took this really unique program at York called, um, business and society. And essentially you ended up with a double major in there was kind of eight, eight different tracks that you could take and they ranged from economics to uh, history. Like I graduated from in sociology to labor relations. And the idea was um, you got to study business's effect on society. And I think what was really interesting was I knew from a young age that I was an entrepreneur and I kind of thought a little differently. And I didn't just want to go to business school because I realized you know, at 16, 17, I would graduate from this with this business degree in my early 20s, and I would kind of be like thousands of other people. And there's nothing wrong with getting a business degree. Don't get me wrong. It's like I think, it, you know, learning things like accounting, uh, the basics and fundamentals of accounting and finance. If you want to be in the business world, that's great experience to have. Um, but to just go and, you know, for me, just to go and get a degree in marketing or something like that, I was like, well, that sounds pretty boring. Um, and I really, as I said, I'm a big dork. I like, I really love history and I really love reading about, you know, I was reading Warren Buffett's, uh, Roger Lowenstein's, you know, making of, making of American capitalist, which is Warren Buffett's, you know, definitive biography. I was reading that at like 13. So like I was not the normal kid. <laughs> so I just translated that. I picked what I, I picked what I already enjoyed. And just made a degree out of it. Um, and what I loved about the business and society program was this, a lot of the lessons that I learned while in that program, I still use today. Like a lot of the frameworks, uh, that I learned about the cycles of business and what was popular, you know, 40, 50, 200 years ago, everything kind of comes back. And it's really cool to, in my view, it's really cool to see how those cycles repeat. Um, the other thing too that it taught me was the, the sociology part was I learned things like negotiation. Like we took an entire course in negotiation, which I literally use every day. Like earlier on today, I was negotiating a supplier contract for, um, a new supplier for our company. And I was using techniques that I originally learned in the classroom when I was like 19, 20. Um, so that's pretty, I got to follow, I just follow what interested me versus what people told me to do. Uh, and I think that was a, that's what's allowed me to be successful then and successful now. Mm-hmm. That's, that's interesting. And it certainly got my attention and I was curious. Uh, now, um, I want to talk about uh, strategy box. So can you tell sure. us about strategy box, what it is, uh, how the idea came about? and the different uh, products and solutions uh, you offer and who is it um, who's your target customer sure so strategy box was born out of this frustration i had with it's really hard in it's really hard to tell even in 2020 how is my marketing doing and i thought you know there's a, this old saying it was from a, a um, guy who owned a a guy owned department stores in the early 20th century named John Watermaker. 
And he said, half my marketing, half my marketing doesn't work. I just don't know which half. So, and I was like, you know, we've got a lot of access to data these days. We've got a lot of access to information we never had before. Why is this problem still not solved? And back when I was a, when I had my previous consulting company, I was looking like I had some very big customers and these were big multinational corporations and, and, you know, I was working at a very high level with them. So, and they were like, listen, you tell us what software to buy that can help us with our marketing reporting. We'll go buy it. And price is really no option or not, sorry, not really a consideration. Like it's like whatever it costs, it costs. We're cool. So I went, oh, okay, cool. And so I went out and tried to find something and, what I found, I just was not very pleased with. It didn't tell you the, it didn't tell you the level of information you wanted. It didn't tell you a story. Um, it certainly didn't uh, usually connect with the platforms that you wanted to use. And so that was my initial light bulb idea was I said, well, I've got customers willing to pay a lot of money to solve this problem because it's really valuable for, for them. And I see a, a competitive landscape where there's not a lot of players. So then my mind went to what I think every, the critical question every entrepreneur should ask, which is like the third question in after, will somebody pay for this? What problem does it solve? Is like, why has nobody solved this problem yet? Um, because there might be a very good reason as to why. And I did some more investigation and I just found that like, nah, it's like, yeah, it's a technically hard problem. And I'll, and I'll talk a little bit how we solve that at strategy box, but really we're not we're not violating the laws of physics here like it's just nobody's done it before and again when i think about things how i think through problems or how i think entrepreneurs have to think through problems is you can't assume anything and you can't let your ego get into it and so what i did was exactly that. like i said earlier it was like oh i've got a paying customer i've got a i've got a the current solution that's kind of lackluster or not great and I didn't see any huge barriers as to why somebody shouldn't do this, um, you know, or there was a technical reason why it's not done this way. Uh, and so I went, OK, well, let's go build a product. So I shut my consulting firm down and um, initially <laughs> initially cobbled together a very, very, very rough uh, product. Uh, as I am a non-technical person, I basically took. I hired a couple developers and and took some off the shelf technology for things like dashboards and data ingestion and kind of cobbled it together and then sold it. Um, and that's what started Strategy Box. And that was three years ago. And it, it took us uh, about a year and a half to two years to kind of figure out um, a market niche that was scalable, but then also um, and what the, you know, economic engine behind us is like, how do we price this thing? How do we distribute it? Um, but also just there were some technical challenges that we need to get over. And I had to find the right people to be able to build those things. And we now do. Um, so now I have, you know, a CTO who a chief technology officer who I consider probably having the experience of maybe a couple dozen people in the world. Um, and so he has some very highly uh, specialized experience for our field and we're able to build a, a really kick ass product. And what we do at the end of the day is make it really easy to understand how your marketing is performing and what to do next in order to drive your sales up. And we do the second part of that is accomplished using machine learning and AI. Um, so we're able to very quickly assess like, hey, 
this is these parts of your marketing, whether it's this advertisement, this influencer, this piece of content are doing really well compared to your competitors or maybe not so well. And this is what you can do next in order to drive your results up. And that all gets delivered as a really simple and easy to understand dashboard. So our customers are typically um, the marketing or sales people in our organization who start using our dashboards in order to save some time, in order to bring all that data in to one place. And then what they start doing is sharing those dashboards with their CEO, their CFO, their board, um, or the opposite. They start, start sharing it down the organization. So, you know, a sales rep, a marketing manager now is a new tool to be able to see how their job, uh, how their job affects the perform- marketing performance of the company. And what's really interesting is back to that quote I was saying earlier about, you know, I, I have, I, I market, I just don't know what half of my marketing works. We're now able to tell all of it. So we're now able to say, Hey, listen, this is how all your marketing is working. And to somebody like a CEO or a CFO, you can suddenly start saying to somebody, Hey, you're going to put a dollar into this marketing machine. This is how you're going to go get $10 in sales. So the barrier for a lot of people in marketing is they don't speak the language of finance. And they don't, they typically don't speak the language of storytelling in business. So when you can present a business case and say, Hey, listen, we're going to do all these marketing initiatives and we're going to spend, this is how we're going to spend one marketing dollar and it turns into $10 in sales. Suddenly you have the attention of the CFO going, Oh, geez, well, we can double your marketing budget tomorrow and we'll get 20 times the amount of sales. Awesome. Cool. Um, so that's where our tools help. That, that's where our suite of tools, uh, can come in is we just, hey, it's one dashboard. You're able to see all your results and it, a marketer can see from first touch to sale. This is what's driving uh, results. And then, hey, here's some suggestions on what to do next in order to drive those results up. Mm-hmm. So, um, one thing I'm curious about, um, your, your solution is meant to help uh, businesses understand the effectiveness of their marketing campaigns. Um, mm-hmm. And when you're doing that through your solution and machine learning algorithms and whatnot, what are the uh, metrics uh, you're looking at? What are the key metrics you're looking at to determine the effectiveness of the campaign and to make uh, relevant recommendations? Uh, you know, it's an interesting observation I've made is that it's typically not the metrics that matter. What matters is the marketing activities themselves. So have you ever heard of the 80-20 rule? Yeah. Yeah, so that's 20, you know, 20% of your, 20% of what you do provides 80% of your results. So in business, that often comes out that 20% of your customers drive 80% of revenue. And that's kind of across industries, that's uh, across size of business, doesn't really matter. And what I've observed within the world of marketing activities is typically a company does, let's say we count usually an average for one product line between 20 to 24 marketing activities. So that's like an email campaign, an advertising campaign on Facebook, LinkedIn ads, that kind of thing. What we've found is that typically only two to four of those marketing activities actually drive results, as in they drive a customer in. They help influence a sale. And what I've what that that can be a blow to people's egos some of the time because they spend a lot of time on these marketing campaigns and then they figure out like, 
oh, this most of this stuff doesn't work. But what I think is really interesting is that you can then take that information and go, well, listen, four of the Facebook campaigns that we run out of 24 work really, really, really well. We can stop doing those other 20 and just start focusing our attention on those four that work really, really, really well. Put more budget in, put more time into maybe tweaking graphics or creative or something like that. And that's going to drive results up exponentially. And so that I think is the really cool thing is it's less about, oh, this click through rate of this ad is performing particularly well. It's more about you as the marketer asking yourself, well, what are the, what are the couple of activities that we do that really bring attention to our company? And so that might be, oh, well, we got covered in the New York Times two years ago. Um, and all of our website traffic comes from that New York Times article. Awesome. Do ads against that New York Times article. Figure out the SE, like figure out how to optimize your keywords so that that article is popping up most. Like that's going to be the driver of attention to your website. Just keep hammering that. Uh, and don't worry about oh, I've got to add Snapchat or TikTok or I've got to do something else. Just figure out the couple of things driving attention to you. So essentially your platform is figuring out uh, the website traffic that's coming through the different campaigns. And mm-hmm. it's it's determining, okay, which campaigns brought the most people and essentially recommends that those campaigns or those kinds of campaigns be re-implemented. You got it. And it could be website traffic. It could be paid campaigns like Facebook. It could be an influencer on Instagram. It could be some media coverage that you got, um, whether it's a, you know, a newspaper or I know most newspapers are online now. It could be a TV ad. It could be a radio ad. We support those as well. Wow. That's, uh, that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I also want to talk to you about uh, your recent uh, fundraising round. You recently raised uh, about two million dollars uh, yes. in the pandemic pandemic era, which um, which is you know I, I guess there is some hope that you know the pandemic hasn't completely stopped venture financing uh, and it's still happening even though there might be difficulties and whatnot. So. Um, so I, I think you mentioned that you started your company about three years ago, Strategy Box. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, yeah, so tell us what what made you think about venture financing? I'm guessing I'm guessing your company already had some revenues coming in. So I guess you had the option of reinvesting that and growing organically. So what made you consider venture financing, and what was the experience like uh, raising money during the pandemic? Uh, both great questions. Uh, I'll answer them in turn. So I, the reason that I invested or the reason that I, uh, went the venture financing round or route is, and I think this is a really important distinction for entrepreneurs to understand is that, um, I don't actually, and I, and I'm throwing my hand up as the guy that just raised $2 million. So like, you know, I'm still a little pot calling the kettle black. Um, I don't believe that most companies need venture financing um, and even tech companies need venture financing. I think it's something that's, it's an unhealthy push uh, by a lot of entrepreneurs don't think through that venture financing isn't the be all end all. 
Um, and it's also not something that's often needed. I was paying my bills, uh, through by essentially asking for setup fees that would amount to usually 40 to 50% of our annual contract value upfront from our customers. And that gave us the cash flow that allowed me to, you know, make payroll and, and pay all our expenses and our taxes and stuff. And the reason I took on venture financing was there was things we wanted to build within the product and we were getting to a size where let's say, I don't know, a bump in the road were to happen. And this was pre COVID. So I was thinking this prior to a global pandemic that there would be a bump in the road and maybe we lose one or two customers. Suddenly I can't grow the way I want because I don't have the money in the bank, the money, the money I want in the bank and or I'm always as an entrepreneur going to be worried about payroll or, you know, we have people sign up with us that have kids and they have mortgages and I can't look them in the eye hiring them knowing I don't have the money in the bank to pay their salary. If no other customers came on for the rest of the year, uh, I just, I'm not wired that way. Uh, so I needed, I needed some, or I felt we needed some cash in the bank that allowed us to make decisions that were, hey, let's go build pieces of our product that are going to take three or six months longer um, and not necessarily have revenue generated immediately from those activities. I've got to have, you know, I've got to go the venture financing round uh, or route. We were growing. We were also growing extremely quickly. Uh, so we were very attractive to VCs and venture capitalists, and we were not quite big enough yet for what's known as venture debt financing or revenue-based financing. Um, our monthly reoccurring was kind of below, just below the $50,000 a month ceiling that a lot of venture debt providers uh, look for. So I went, okay, well, I want cash in the bank for a year. If no, you know, cash in the bank to pay everybody's salaries for a year. If nobody else comes on, I want, we're, you know, I don't, no bank would look at us because we were too, you know, we were too much for a risk. We're too early stage. Um, and I don't really qualify for venture financing. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go the, I'm going to go the venture, uh, the venture capital route. And I found partners, you know, I canvassed Vancouver, Toronto, London, New York, LA, um, Austin, Park City, Utah. Uh, and we looked specifically for, Partners that were operator were venture capitalists that were had prior to being venture capitalists were business operators, so they had owned their own businesses or built their own businesses and knew the marketing and technology space well, um, because that's a barrier in our businesses. It takes a lot of time to educate people about the technologies that we use, use and the nuances of our market. And I wanted partners that I could have a very fluent conversation with about what we're up to. And they would intuitively grasp it. Uh, and so that took a little bit of time and eventually found, uh, Mark Pearson at Fuel Ventures at a London, uh, uh, London, uh, unit in the UK. And he immediately got it. He had had the same problem that we solved when he was growing his two businesses. He, you know, um, we were able to get the valuation that we wanted, uh, or that I wanted for the business and what I felt the business was worth. And so we were able to do the transaction. Um, COVID, Put a very interesting <laughs> strain on it. Um, in yeah. that, what was interesting, and I guess this is the two pieces of advice I give I give to anybody raising money are: 
do you need to do it first off? So that was why I went into that long, long-winded story about kind of this is where the business was at and do I need to raise money? Yes. Okay. Check that box. Second thing is find people that are aligned with your values. I think a lot of venture cap, venture capital sometimes very deservedly gets a bad rap in that there's a lot of guys out there that the deals that they do with the entrepreneurs aren't great for the entrepreneurs. They're good for the fund. Um, and I don't, I don't particularly like that. It hamstrings both. It actually ends up hamstringing both the fund and the business um, and restricts kind of what they can do. So there's, you know, things like uh, very restrictive, there can be very restrictive clauses or very, or makes, or their deal can be very dilutive. And I know this is getting into the weeds, but um, a lot of entrepreneurs, I think they want the big valuation number to appear in a headline and they don't necessarily, they don't necessarily think through that if they're raising money, they have to hit certain performance targets and raise money in subsequent rounds. And that might mean that they own very little of their company very quickly. So they have to think through what's the ownership, what's the ownership that they want uh, to maintain as their company grows. In the pandemic, I found in, in Fuel Ventures, I found somebody who is very values aligned with me and had been in my shoes before. And so it was very easy to talk to. So when the pandemic hit, we were doing all the legal due diligence and steps that you normally have to do in a, in a venture transaction. And what was amazing was his name is Mark Pearson. Mark got on the phone with me and said, um, this deal is going to go through. We are a hundred percent backing you, um, no matter how long this takes. And you have not, you have nothing to worry about there. We're in your corner. And that's when I knew I'd kind of picked the right people to be with. Uh, because no matter there was this bump in the road, they said, you know what? Over the long term, this, um, you know, the world will bounce back from the pandemic. They're still going to need your product in the, during the pandemic and later, and you're going to be okay. Uh, and we're going to make sure that we get this done. And we were able to. So, um, yeah, everything took a little longer and I had to, <laughs> I pay, I had to pay more in legal fees. And, you know, it was, it was never touch and go, but it just, you know, there was government approvals that we needed that were outside of our control. So we had to just wait for the UK government and the Canadian government to just kind of frankly, just get their shit together so that we could, <laughs> we could then conclude our transaction. Um, and that was just a bit of a waiting game. So what I did was ensured as a leader that, you know, I was talking to all my employees every day about how the raise was going. Um, as soon as there was updates, I had material updates for the team or my team, I was able to give them. Um, we had to, you know, had to get some bridge financing, uh, just to, just to ensure we could maintain the growth trajectory that we've been on. But other than that, it was like, okay, we got to do this. And I think, or we got to do this and I've got the right people in the corner. And I think in an event like the pandemic, you see people's true colors and you see who they really are. And that can be a good or a bad. That can be a, that's usually a really good thing, I should say. Um, in that if somebody goes away or somebody doesn't fulfill on what they said they were going to do, that's probably not a partner that you want because that's a fair weather friend in my, in, in my opinion. And in, especially in the uh, world of, you know, high growth, high growth tech companies, you can't really have fair weather partners. You need to have people that can weather storms and weather ups and downs of, of building a large scale business. Mm-hmm. Did, did you have to give up more equity because you were raising money 
uh, during the pandemic? Like, do you feel like you got the pandemic surcharge? <laughs> uh, that's a thing. Tell me more. No, no, I just, I just made that term. I oh, was okay. Because... I was like, I've never heard that. I, that's a thing. Oh my God. Um, no, well, actually, no, actually to that, to that point, um, I have heard of people and this goes back to again, back to, you know, selecting the right partners. Um, you know, companies, companies raising money during the pandemic, their VCs have given them a term sheet. A week later, they come in and they go, Hey, listen, we thought your company was worth 15 or 25 million last week. This week it's worth 10. Same terms. So like, you know, same amount of money is involved, but you know, our ownership stake is now just worth exponentially more or is worth double. Um, take it or leave it. And you know, oh, wow. you kind of go, oof, that's not a partner I want. Um, I, I think we got a really great valuation for, for what the company, you also have to remember is like, I was in a unique space of building a company that has customers, has revenue, was cash flow positive, was growing really, it was growing really quickly. Like I've done my work to set my company up for success. And what I find a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with is they're like, well, I need the money to do the thing. And I'm the first person to say, I don't have, I don't know how to code. I don't like, I, I don't know how to code. I didn't have a million dollars in the bank when I started this company. Um, I didn't have, um, I didn't, I didn't have a very clear idea as to what our product was or the, pro and I knew roughly the problem we would solve, but I didn't know how exactly we were going to solve it. I went out and I sold something and I went out and I saw, I, I, I found out would enough people in the market part with their hard earned dollars to pay for a service to solve the problem that we solve. And I think a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of people don't do that first. But what that does when you come into a, a, a fundraising round is that puts you in a place of strength. So I can then say some partner were to come along and go, well, we're not going to invest in you um, or we're going to cut, you know, your valuation in half. I'd just be like, all right, later, like go away. Didn't want you anyway. So that because we were we're in that strength position, um, but a lot of companies don't do that, and it's like it's not it's not that it's hard to do. It's just a few extra steps, and and I'm not I'm not advocating I'm not advocating you know I, I had some dark I've had some dark nights of the soul trying to figure this thing out, um, and I'm not perfect at it, but I just go yeah, there's some very easy things that you can go do that I think a lot of entrepreneurs are just afraid to do, which is like go ask people for money. Like, go, go, like, hey, this is the product you want to go sell. Go, go sell 10 of it. Go get 10 signed contracts. They could be proof of concept. They don't have to be full blown things, but get 10 people interested in what you're doing and, and serious enough to sign a contract. If you're selling to another business, if you're selling to a consumer, same deal, but just sell them something. Um, and that the worst comes to worst, you can't build it. You give the money back. Like, that's always been my philosophy. Uh -huh. Are you able to disclose uh, the valuation at, we, at which you raise the money? Uh, we're not doing that at this time. <laughs> it's a, it, was a seed, <laughs> it was a seed round. Um, yeah, the round was, the round size was $2 million. All right. All right. Yeah. And, and one key point that you mentioned and no one has mentioned this before in any of my episodes, including the episodes where we talked about fundraising as 
entrepreneurs don't always need to raise money and they they need to really think about it uh, before they jump into fundraising and investor discussions and and perhaps like yourself other entrepreneurs have thought about that but i feel like there are definitely people who just get excited about fundraising and investor interest and and the idea of having a huge amount of capital uh in a period of months um without perhaps thinking about you know what they're giving away in terms of equity in terms of future profits and in terms of control uh that they kind of might be jumping into it in an excitement and what not so i mm-hmm. guess in your, in in your case you had you had as you said you thought about it you had your reasons and uh, and you were also negotiating from a position of strength rather than a position of you know okay i'll take whatever i can get or i will let the investor decide how to value my company so those those are definitely good uh, good uh, takeaways so thank you for sharing that no no worries and yeah i think the the phrase i learned years ago from a, a guy i used to work with was equity is like toothpaste once you squeeze it out of the tube it's really hard to get back in and so when i always just think about that it's like you know i i see I see a lot of entrepreneurs just kind of throwing ownership in their company a lot of different directions. And you kind of go like, oof, that's not easy. Like once you give it away, it's, you can't really get it back that easy. Um, and so be, I think the words parsimonious would be the, the word of the day word. Like be very like stingy. Um, and don't be afraid to say, no, we're worth, we're worth X and we, this is why we believe that. And, and, there are other ways to get paid, if you will. And like you said, it's sexy. It's sexy to be in those conversations with investors. It's sexy yeah. to, to think about millions of dollars showing up in your bank account all of a sudden, which don't get me wrong. Cause it just happened to me is like, your ego definitely gets a stroke. Like, don't, it's like, <laughs> Ooh, that was fun. Like, cool. Um, but at the same time you go, I look at that. I go capital. And I, I, no pun intended because my VC's name is Fuel Ventures. Um, no pun intended. It is fuel. Like it's, it's yeah. a resource to be used to get you to a location, to get you to a, your, a destination of a more sustainable, self-sustaining business. That's what it's there for. And so you have to think about, I, I just, this is just my value system. I come at it from this is my, this is my money. How would I deploy it? It's not somebody else's money. It's my money. So how am I going to use it most effectively? How am I going to allocate that capital so that it has its highest return? So, you know, we don't spend money on, well, post COVID, we don't have fancy. Nobody's got a fancy office anyway. We're all work from home, but, um, you know, we're not blowing it on. I'm not blowing it on, you know, a $75,000 website. I'm not blowing it on, you know, I'm, I'm saying, well, Hey, actually hiring X, Y, and Z person, why they, while they might have a very high salary, um, they allow us to build, you know, this piece of our product radio attribution specifically that we didn't have before that allows us to then go sell, you know, sell into a line of business and take, take over a, conservatively quarter million dollar market we didn't have access to before. Yeah. You know what? That person's six figure salary is totally worth it because then that allows me to go access this market. I couldn't do that before. So that's what I mean to say is like that allocation of capital is what is, is how you need to treat these things. And 
like I said, it's just fuel. So don't get caught up in the, and ultimately just don't get caught up in the number that you're going to see on a headline. Just see it as like, yep, this is a resource and I have to deploy it as best I can. And there's other ways to get it. It might not be VC. It might be something, it might be a loan from the business development bank of Canada. It might be getting your customers to pay up front. And, um, it, it, that's easier to do when you sell business to business, but you can still do it in a consumer context as well. Um, so yeah. And, and that's my number one thing is like the pandemic hasn't, the pandemic has certainly changed how a lot of businesses will deploy and what businesses are attractive and what aren't, but it hasn't fundamentally changed that people need to live. People want experiences. People want to enrich their lives. People want to feel good. They want to, you know, they, they want to feel good. They want to expand and live into their potential. That hasn't changed. So, I don't like it when people make excuses and saying, Oh, I can't start a business because of X. It's like, yeah, you know what? You probably can't starting a gym chain right now. Probably not the smartest idea. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, granted, but Hey, starting a business around online coaching for wellness and mindset might totally be something that that's even more in demand than it was six months ago. Go do that. Okay. So it's not a gym. It's this other thing. That's fine. That was the universe guiding you towards that anyway. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's true. And I guess another key point you made is once you uh, once you receive that kind of big check and big amount, you want to be smart and efficient with uh, with your capital. And rather yeah. than spending it on fancy offices and fancy stuff, you want to really make a budget as to how you want to spend it, and you want to spend on on meaningful things. Uh, which which help your company in the long run. So so those are definitely some uh, good insights. Um, and it's been nice uh, chatting with you. And thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show and also sharing your insights and uh, and your story. Thank you very much, Salman. It's been wonderful chatting with you. Perfect. Um, you want to share your website? Or how can people find you? Sure. So website is www.strategybox.com. Um, so strategy, the word strategy box, all one word. Uh, we are also, I did want to plug, we are hiring for many positions right now, whether it's front end development to customer success to, um, data scientists to marketing and demand generation people. Uh, so if analytics interests you, if you have a passion for making things easier, um, making things easier for people, uh, and working for an organization that really values, uh, people working at the top of their game, uh, look us up. And, and where, where are you located? Uh, we're headquartered in Vancouver, Canada, but we current, and we have offices in, uh, London, in London, in the United Kingdom. Uh, we do accept applications from people working in Western Europe and in North American time zones. All right, perfect. Uh, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this uh, episode and you find it to be engaging and insightful. And as Aaron mentioned, uh, you can visit his website, strategybox.com, to learn about the company and opportunities. And thank you so much for listening to Zonecast and stay tuned for more episodes.